0: This is Sterling Step Back Gibbs, and I'm here with my guys, Left Coast
1: Pirates. Listen in.
0: seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layout.
2: Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate, from San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Dizzieri, class of 2001, I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey?
0: Hanging in there, Tommy. Coronavirus, summer series interview number three (laughs) on I'm ready to go. I got the coffee in hand. Let's do this.
2: Mikey, am I the only one feeling great about this? I mean, I'm having time to spend with the family. We're outside shooting hoops. We're playing more bump games than uh, than any man should ever play. I don't know. I'm having a good time here. It's, it's
0: just different. I think we all adjust in our own special way, and we find a way to adapt. This obviously is a nice little break in the action and allows us to kind of have some fun and kind of take our minds off the bigger picture. So... I'm with you. I'm enjoying it to the best of my ability, specifically these interviews that we get to do. But I I know this one's gonna be a little more special for you. I remember Mark Bryant being a, you know, a big landmark because you grew up watching Mark play. I kind of became a Seton Hall fan right after Adrian Griffin had left the program. So I know you were in school while AG was kind of, you know, coming on board. I think you were in the same freshman class if I'm not mistaken, right? So I'll, I'll let you take it from there. I know this one holds a little, extra special clout in, in in your heart.
2: Well, absolutely, and what's funny is, is I don't know how many people realize or I don't know if AG realizes how popular he is with the Seton Hall community. This is legitimately the most requested interview that we get. And everyone's always like, when are you getting AG on? And I'm like, he's a Toronto Raptors assistant coach, man! He's not going to just drop out of the sky. But we got him. He's
0: an important figure in the NBA. He's an important figure that still resonates back to the name of Seton Hall basketball. And there's just not a lot of connection back to the past. We, we keep on talking about that as, you know, one of the shortcomings of, of Seton Hall and kind of glorifying and, and going down memory lane with these players. That's why we enjoy doing these interviews. So the younger generation still gets to see his name and associate with Seton Hall. So, so it makes sense, right? It, 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 he resonates still. So it is kind of cool that we got to have him on, and I'm, I'm glad he gave us a few minutes out of his day.
2: He was a star for the Wichita East High School Blue Aces and won a state title in his senior season. Went on to star for the Pirates in the mid-90s, getting third-team All-Big East honors in his junior season and second-team in his next, along with winning the Haggerty Award for the Metropolitan Area's top player in 1996. Played nine NBA seasons with teams like the Boston Celtics, Dallas Mavericks, Houston Rockets, Chicago Bulls, and the Seattle Supersonics. Since his play's day is concluded, he is being on coaching staff for NBA teams such as Milwaukee, Chicago, Orlando, and OKC, and is currently the lead assistant coach for the defending NBA champs, Toronto Raptors. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Adrian Griffin. Adrian, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on.
2: You love
0: Tom promo there. He gets all hyped up.
1: Oh man, <laughs> it made me sound like I was uh, Kobe Bryant or or, or MJ there
0: for a second. Well, to us, you are though, right? You're, you're a big pirate. Uh, great coming on the show. So, so we appreciate it. Uh, thank you for coming on, Adrian. No problem, man. So uh, before we get sorry, started, sorry. Uh, we do, we always want to kind of check in with everything that's going on now. So, how are things with the family in relation to COVID nineteen is Is everybody healthy and safe?
1: Yeah, everyone's doing well. Um, My wife is here with me in Toronto, so um, it's been a blessing in disguise. We've been able to spend more time together than we've spent in the last four years. So uh, that's been awesome. Uh, And my kids are safe in in, uh, New York. So, um, you know, we all miss basketball, but right now we got to do the right thing. Uh,
0: So that must've been interesting.
1: I mean, the, the NBA was the first to announce the postponement and
0: cancellation of their sports season, and the Raptors were kind of right in the middle of it all. Your team had just played the Jazz and Rudy Gobert just a couple days prior to him testing positive uh, and their game between the Jazz and the Thunder being postponed. How challenging was it for your organization to go through the initial phases of self-quarantine with all the unknown surrounding the pandemic at that point?
1: Well, it it definitely uh, took everyone uh, by surprise. Um, Like you said, we, we were playing some good basketball. Felt like uh, we had a lot of momentum going into towards uh, postseason. And uh, with only 20, 20 games left, we felt like we were in a very good position. However, you know, when something like this hits, you, you it definitely catches you off guard. And we didn't know exactly what to do, but to uh, the credit uh, to the Toronto Raptors, they immediately got us tested as soon as we got back in uh, Toronto. Um, it was probably around 12 o'clock at night and we got an email and a phone call and said we needed to go immediately to the hospital and they set up, uh, the whole facility for us. So a lot of, uh, respect and gratitude for the organization for handling like that. And then we went in, went on, uh, initial two week quarantine and they, uh, extended it since. So it's been a lot of, uh, free time, um. so I've been catching up on a lot of reading and, and doing things that uh, I probably wouldn't have time to do otherwise.
2: When it all
0: first went down, did the players think it was gonna be as serious as it ended up being? I mean, did they think they were just gonna get back to games after everyone got tested? Well, what was the mindset?
1: I think no one expected it to uh, be extended this this long. Uh, we all thought that, you know, a couple weeks, that's what we were told initially. Uh, quarantine and reevaluate, and then it's, it continued to get extended, and and I think that's when reality said sat in, and that we hey, we may not have a season, and we may have a season. Uh, so everything has been up uh, in, in in limbo right now. Uh, the commissioner came out and and uh, yesterday actually yesterday he said it's still we're in the unknown. So it's it gets a little frustrating because you don't know exactly. Uh, what's going on and when we're going to play. But uh, this is the time we just got to continue to be patient.
2: Well, we're glad to hear you and your family are doing well, and we're going to talk more about your basketball career in a bit, but we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about that talented family tree you're developing sure. in terms of yeah. basketball success. Yes. For the for those who don't know, and I don't know who wouldn't know at this point, your son Allen had played two years for Illinois and recently transferred to Syracuse. Yes, Aubrey's entering her sophomore or will be entering her sophomore year at UConn. She just played at Walsh Gym for the first time. And AJ is a five-star prospect who recently committed to Duke for the for coming fall. Correct. Now, Adrian, I got to ask you, it'll kill me if I don't, you couldn't have at least convinced one of these fine children to come to South Orange?
1: I, I wouldn't uh, mind it at all, you know, but, you know, as parents, you got to let them uh make their own path, so to speak and but it would have been awesome to have one of them go to uh seton hall and and i I'm hundred percent confident that they would have had a better career than I had because they they're they're very talented kids and uh and they should be I had them around the game since they they were kids, and they were exposed to a lot uh on the basketball side and uh taking them to practices and whatnot and kind of get them a head start but you know they're good good bunch of kids i couldn't be uh, more proud
0: not even like a tiny nudge like come on like <laughs> put the name in the ring i didn't i didn't even see seton hall's name in the mix with your kids to be honest well i can imagine that there were probably just as many schools recruiting you as your children had recruiting them back in the day who were some of the the schools that were recruiting you the hardest
1: Believe it or not, I wasn't a a big recruit uh, coming out of high school. It was a lot of mid-major schools, Tulsa, Creighton, Loyola, Chicago, uh, teams like that. And, you know, when Seton Hall came along, I I knew this was going to be a grand opportunity to play in the Big East. Um, There was a lot of uncertainty. A lot of people kind of doubted that uh, uh, kids from Kansas can make it in the Big East on the East Coast. And I had some doubts myself, you know, but... Um, you could just continue to work and work and work. And I was fortunate to be under uh, P.J. Carlesimo, who's an excellent uh, coach, uh, legendary college coach, taught me a lot of the fundamentals that I, I used when I got in the league. And it made me appreciate P.J. a lot more because, you know, he was tough. You know, if anybody, anybody knows P.J. back then, you know, he was a, he can get on you. Uh, he could ride you a little bit.
0: No, not not
1: PJ. <laughs> oh. And uh, you know, when you're 18, you don't understand it. And and then when I got into the league, man, I was like, wow, like he was preparing me for the NBA. So uh, I got to, you know, I get to see PJ at least once or twice a season because he does a lot of the NBA games, and it's just good to go up to him, give him a big hug, and you know, say thank you, and and uh, you know you. It's like your kids, when when your kids don't understand you as parents, but then when they get older, you could, you know, you're like, man, I'm, I'm grateful that my, my mom and my dad taught me a little bit about uh, life and discipline and whatnot. As Tom mentioned at the top of the show, you grew up a Wichita, Kansas
0: kid. So at any point, or did it ever go through your head about the possibility of playing in Fog Allen Fieldhouse for Roy Williams back in the day? <sighs>
1: Of course, um, you know, I, I wasn't, like I said before, I wasn't a big time recruit, even even though I felt like I should have been, you know, I won a state ch- uh, title my senior year. I was uh player of the year. I think it was McDonald's player of the year or Gatorade player of the year, one of those. And I felt like a little disrespected that I wasn't getting recruited by uh, major D1 schools. Uh KU never came after me. K-State did, but at the time, that program wasn't where uh, it had eventually had grown to over the years. But I had no major D1 schools uh, coming after me. And I think when I went to Seton Hall, that was kind of one of the things that uh, drove me, uh, gave me a little chip on my shoulder that I wanted to prove to people that I could play major D1 basketball.
2: Well, Roy Williams' loss was Seton Hall's game because you came to Seton Hall in 1992-93, and you got to be part of a real special team in Seton Hall history. We always say it was the deepest team, the most talented team Seton Hall's seen. Additionally, it's the only Seton Hall team to win both the regular season and tournament titles in the same year. So how talented was that team, and where do you think it belongs ranked in all-time Seton Hall teams?
1: It's definitely up there. I would say the 89 uh, team that, that went to the finals is number one. Uh, and I would say the, the biggest team uh, that year, with all that talent on there, was it, it had to be uh, number two in, in my eyes. You know, Terry deHare was a phenomenal score. Uh, we had Luther Wright, who was a man-child. Uh, we, you know, it was like an incredible hawk, you know, it was just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, we had Danny Hurley, Artores uh, John Leahy. We just had unbelievable talent. Uh, Brian uh, Caver was on that team. And uh, unfortunately, you know, in the NCAAs, it, it's, you're one and done if you lose. It, and uh, unfortunately, we lost. Uh, but I, I always felt that team was a Final Four team. And we didn't. Uh, live up to expectations uh, that year in my eyes.
2: Now, we've talked to a couple of your teammates from that season. We talked to Jerry Walker, and he basically said Mark Bell, and we're talking about the Western Kentucky game now in particular, but he said Mark Bell killed you guys that game. We also had Arturis on the show, and he said he just felt like it wasn't the Pirates' day. Just like you said, anything can happen in the tournament. What do you think went wrong that day?
1: Well, one, you got to give them credit. You know, they were well prepared and they they outplayed us. Um, But you don't have to play well for the entire game. You just, you got to find a way to win. And we just didn't. Uh, I think with that talent that we had, we still had opportunities to make make moves during the game. And we just couldn't come up with the plays. And and it, it really comes down, you know, being a coach myself, it just, it really comes down to who can make more plays, you know, and they were able to uh, keep us at bay, and we could never really get in the rhythm that game. And uh, you got to give them credit. Uh, we we didn't have our A game or or B game. I just felt like we did. We it was very uncharacteristic of how we've played um, that that entire season. And uh, you know, you don't get those opportunities back. It's, it, it's it's a shame. It's it's kind of one of the uh, twenty. Uh, 06, we lost in the finals And when I was with the Mavericks, we lost to Miami. And I would say um, Seton Hall losing to Western Kentucky. Those two uh, losses haunt me, you know? And even though I was a freshman on that team, I did realize the impact, uh, the magnitude of that game and, and the opportunities that I never got that opportunity again to, uh, to go that far.
2: It haunts us fans as well, Adrian. That was my freshman year. I had come up growing up in the area watching all that success, and I'm thinking to myself, this is just a start. We're rolling. Right. being a fan, I'm going to say, I think the refs had a little bit of a tight whistle that game. I think (laughs) you, Jerry Walker, and Arturis all fouled out that game, if I wasn't mistaken. They just didn't let the Big East boys play.
1: Well, you know, you got to adjust. Uh, to the refs. That's part of it. And, um, hopefully, you know, you know, I haven't really revisited that game. It's kind of painful <laughs> for me. Uh, same with the old six game. You, you kind of put out out of sight, out of mind, sort of speak, but, you know, that's part of, of the playing basketball and, and the rules and you gotta be able to adjust how, how the refs are calling it. And, you know, I try not to make mistakes, but, um, you could Even in 06, you know, I was guarding D-Wade and he he was shooting 20-plus free throws. So, you know, it, it's easy to say, hey, <laughs> you know, this this is kind of <laughs> a little bit unbalanced here. But, uh, again, you know, it's part of, of the game. And, and if you're going to be a champion, you got to be able to overcome a lot of adversity.
0: I got one more perspective on that game.
1: When we were talking to Jerry, he was comparing
0: uh, Coach Hurley to Coach Carlissimo. And he said, you know, Bobby Hurley Sr. was all business, no nonsense. Where PJ, absolutely, he was still a, you know, a, a drill sergeant, but he kind of allowed you guys to bomb with him. He'd loosen up. And Jerry said that prior to that game in the warmups, maybe you guys were a little bit loosey goosey. And there's no way that Bob Hurley Sr. would have let any one of his teams kind of take that casual approach. Is do you feel like that was the attitude of the team that you guys just believed in yourself so much that maybe you took that team for granted?
1: I'm not sure. You know, I was a freshman then. I would say that P.J. had us prepared. Um, P.J. was always prepared. Um, that was one of his uh, strengths as a coach. And, you know, sometimes your players, uh, like I said before, they, they do some things that are uncor- characteristic when they're put in certain situations. You you don't know how players are going to respond, um, you know, when the lights come on. some Some players deal with pressure differently. Um, I, I would definitely say it wasn't PJ. Um, he, was, he was a phenomenal coach. And uh, sometimes it's up to the players to to carry over what you've been training for. You know, uh, when those lights comes on, it's not about the coaches anymore. It's about how can the players go out there and execute at a high level and, and perform and, and play together. And we just didn't do that. You know, you can't point the fingers at the refs or the coaching uh, it was our responsibility to go out there and get the job done, and, and we just came sh- came up short that game.
0: Well, for a lot of the guys, that was their last ride. You had you know Terry, Jerry, Luther move on from the organization, but for you, it was just getting started. So we head into your sophomore season, and your numbers clearly start to pick up. You're now averaging almost ten points a game. You average seven point eight rebounds per game, and you're dishing out almost two and a half assists. Clearly, you had to step up with those other guys kind of leaving but did you think that you were actually going to lead the team in rebounding and rank in the top 10 in the big East?
1: Yes. uh, That was, that was one, you know, that was one of my strengths. Um, You know, I've always tried to find ways to impact the game. That's how I played nine years in the NBA. I averaged four uh, points a game in the NBA and one thing I always try to teach to, m- to my younger players and-, and my kids is that there's so many ways that you can impact the game without scoring. And coaches, any good coach will tell you that they'll find a way. If you impact winning, you will play. Because coaches want to win. I, it, it, it gives me a chuckle when I listen to players to say that coach doesn't like them. And, no, I, and that, my response is that, no, the coach just hates losing. You know, if you can <laughs> help that, that coach win, you're going to play. I mean, what coach is not going to want guys on the floor that could help him get more W's, help him get more money, a longer contract, it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, I learned at a young age is to get out there and hustle and and effort plays and do the things that a lot of players didn't want to do. And it just has always been so good to me. It's always served me well.
0: The, the glue guy, right? I mean, everybody, who, the guy who does the dirty the dirty work, the little things. I mean, we had Marcus Toniel on the podcast last summer as well, and people kind of criticized Marcus because his offensive numbers never really kind of took off as he played four years at Seton Hall, but Marcus always did the little things, and I appreciated that as part of his game, and I know that your numbers obviously became superstar level at Seton Hall, but you're right. That's kind of how I, you know, respected your NBA game is you just did what it took to stay on the court and help team win.
1: You know, in, in this, when I was in the seventh grade, I had a teammate. His name was Dwayne Flowers, and he was in the eighth grade. And uh, his nickname was Mister Smooth. And uh, he was even in at, as the eighth grade. He was so athletic, and he was. He was just smooth with the ball, and he could score, and he could do all those things at an early age. And then the reporter gave me the nickname of the Garbage Man, and that's. You know, at the, at the seven, in it. seventh grade, I was like, the garbage, man. I was like, I'm not <laughs> garbage? You know, I didn't understand that. And I, I later uh, realized that he was saying that I'm always around the basket. You know, I'm always getting those loose balls, and I'm always getting those putbacks. And I didn't know he was giving me a compliment at, at the time. I thought he was, like, you know, almost putting me down. But even that – Back in the seventh grade, that was my game. You know, I was always around the basket. I had a nose for the ball. And and I think your your skill set will make room for you. And I think a lot of kids are trying to do something different. They they feel like, I got to score 30 points. Well, if that's your game and and that's what the team needs, and that's your role, absolutely go for 30. But everyone can't shoot the ball. And I think if you could find ways to be productive out there, and uh, if you're a great rebounder, get every rebound. If you're a great defender, you know lock down your guy, and just do what you do, and just do it to your best ability, and, and they'll find they'll find room for you.
2: I just want to point out that there are beat reporters in Wichita on the seventh eighth grade league level. That's pretty impressive.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you right, garbage, is- man.
2: <laughs> well, let's move on
0: with the rest of that sophomore season. So that the team ends up finishing the regular season. 15-11, you're 8-10 and 10 and sitting in seventh place in the Big East. You were only 1-5 and against ranked opponents at that point, and now you're heading into the Big East tournament, and most Pirate fans didn't think you had a shot at that large bid. But you go on and you beat Miami by 18 in the opening night of the tournament, and it sets up a showdown with 13th-ranked Syracuse, who was the two-seed in the Big East tournament at that time. The game goes to OT, the Pirates are trailing by two in the final seconds, and Artie swings the ball over to John Leahy, who was over three from deep at that point in the game now be honest did you think John was gonna knock down the game winner
1: oh absolutely I mean he was a shooter that was his role man I'm telling you he was he was a sharp shooter you know he was a sniper and uh that was his role and, and shooters keep shooting man I'm telling you you know uh if you look at any, any of the, the guys on the pro level they just they never seem to to uh get out of character with that they you got to know who you are, and uh, we had ultimate confidence in uh, John Leahy. And of course, I could say that now, but he's uh, he was our he, he was our shooter. You know, back then you had specialists. You know, you, now everyone's shooting the three. But back when I played, you know that especially that sophomore year, he was the guy. He was the him, Artie. They were our perimeter shooters, and uh, you know we had ultimate confidence in him.
2: And John I, Leahy I, I, was a big boy. I mean, he yes. didn't look like he was going to come down and pull a three. He looked like he right. was going to put his big butt down in the post yeah. and, and put his arm up for you to feed him. But he was he was a big boy.
0: I, I yeah, found he, a funny quote for John after that game. He goes, I'm shooting 25% on three-pointers. He goes, I missed my first three. I made the last one. The law of averages was with me.
1: <laughs> See? That's the shoes mentality right there. My point taken.
0: All right, so the Pirates end up playing another OT thriller before falling to Georgetown in the semifinals the next night. How special was it to get to play these types of games in Madison Square Garden?
1: You know, I, I've always told people that I I've never had a bad game in, in the Garden. Now, I, I I wouldn't put up crazy numbers, and I wouldn't drop in 30, but I've always had a good feeling. You know, as an athlete, when you walk in the building, you always have feel like you just got to – a great rhythm and confidence going into uh, that type of environment. And I've always felt that from my freshman year all the way to my senior year, it's just something about the garden. Just people tend to solidify themselves into great greatness, you know, the Jordans and, you know, I was fortunate to have Terry DeHair my my freshman year and he was the unbelievable, just his work ethic and a competitor and some of the stuff that he was doing in, and dropping those numbers and going into the garden and going to, you know, it was, it set the tone for me that I really realized like, okay, this is big time basketball. And, you know, I miss those days of, of, you know, being a a freshman, a sophomore and going into, you know, the garden and playing or playing Villanova and playing Georgetown and playing Syracuse, man, that was big time basketball.
0: All right, so after you guys lose that semifinals, you know the, the resume of the Pirates is still kind of fringy, right? So did the team think it had done enough to kind of lock up an NCAA tournament bid at that point with the strong showing in the Big East tournament?
1: We were not as confident. Uh, we, we felt like we had an opportunity, and it, it was, you're on the bubble. You know, we were literally on the bubble, but we felt like because we were playing in the uh, NC, I'm sorry, the Big East, and we also felt like having P.J. Carlissimo as our coach gave us a lot of credibility that we, we were well, well coached, we're well prepared, and we can do some damage in the NCAA tournament. And so I remember sitting in, in the locker room and we were so excited when they, they called Seton Hall's name. And it's just the stuff that's made for TV. You know, we were like one of those teams that you see all the time that are sitting in the locker room and, and you get the bid and the nod and, and you just cheering and so happy. So that, that was one of my fondest, I think, you know, my freshman year, I was more like a spectator, you know, cause you just, you know, you only getting five, seven, 10 minutes a game. Uh, you don't really feel like you're impacting a lot of what's going on. But my sophomore year, I felt like I have a little more skin in the game. So that was very rewarding to see all our hard work and and be able to get that bid.
2: Well, you get the bid, you make the tournament, and you go on to lose to a really talented Michigan State team. They had Eric mm-hmm. Snow, Sean Respert. You lose in the first round as a 10 seed, but you know this was the fourth season in a row. Seeing so you how it made a tournament, we're all happy. We're gonna keep it rolling, and then the bombshell hits three months later. PJ decides to announce he's leaving South Orange. He's Mm. going to Portland for the Trailblazers. I mean, the money was great. It was rumored to be a deal about a million and a half dollars a year. But did anyone around the program have a feeling PJ was going to leave or was it a surprise to everybody? I mean, he was been there 12 years. He had really good success. It seems like it was Mm -hmm. still building. What happened?
1: For me, it was a total surprise. Uh, After the season was over and after the uh, sophomore year, I went back to Kansas for the summer. Like most kids, you go back to your hometown. And I was watching ESPN, and it came across that PJ was uh, leaving. And maybe 30 seconds right after that, PJ called me and said that he was going to take a job in the pros. And the <laughs> the most uh, the funniest thing is is that so my first two years, like I had to give you a little bit of background. So in high school, my high school coach never yelled, he never raised his voice, he never cursed. My dad was a minister, he never yelled, he never cursed. So I had I never had anyone <laughs> get on me like that. So my first two years, it was tough for me, you know, mentally just learning how to play under those circumstances. So when I went home to Kansas that summer, I, I said, you know what? My junior year, I'm a toughen up and I'm be mem- mentally prepared for PJ. And I spent all summer, like, getting myself mentally prepared for him. And then he calls me and say, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm leaving. So I was like, it. That's
0: it. I'm blaming
2: you. <laughs> we had Mark Bryan on last year, and he said that most of the time he heard, what the blankety blank, double right. O, what the blankety blank.
1: Yeah. Well, mine was FNAG. That's, you know, every time I did something, FNAG. I thought my name was FNAG for like two years, you know. Oh, that's funny. Times have changed. I can't, can't right. do that anymore, right? I don't think you can do that now, you know? <laughs>
2: you
1: know.
2: All right. So, Well, so how difficult of a transition was it heading into your junior season as a leader of this team? But also, you need to adapt to a new personality and a new coach in George Blaney.
1: Well, it was totally, different. It, honestly, it was night and day. You know, uh, uh, Coach Blaney was awesome, uh, yet he was very reserved, uh, never, never yelled, never raised his voice, never cursed. It, it was like my high school coach all, all over again. I guess God knew what I needed. And, uh, but, you know, it's, you miss that discipline, to be honest with you. When when you're with a coach like uh, PJ and he demands a, a certain standard, and I'm not saying that Coach Blaney uh, did not it, and that, that's far. I love Coach Blaney. He was awesome. Um, but, you know, when a lot of times, like I coached with Tom Thibodeau and he was tough, but when he left the Bulls, you know, when I was talking to some of the former Bulls players, they were like, man, we, we missed that structure. You know, you miss it. You know, you, you miss uh, being held at a high standard. And I think that's how I felt with, with, when PJ left uh, later on, especially my senior year, you you're like, Hey, this is, this is for real now. Like this is your last shot. And uh, you want the other players in the locker room to have that type of uh, urgency and discipline and, um, it wasn't quite the same, to be honest with you. Like, we, we lost some of our edge, um, some of our, our, our discipline. And, and and again, that was more on the players than, than anything. But, you know, you you, I really uh, missed, as, as far as P.J. I, 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 I didn't like it at the time. But I missed it, if that makes sense.
0: You don't know what you have until you don't have it anymore, right? Correct. All right, but your game still blossomed, right? So your junior season. Now you're up to almost 15 points a game. The rebounding doesn't slack off. You earn third team all Big East, and back then that's a big deal because of Mm. all the teams that are in the conference. The team doesn't have the the same kind of success, 16 and 14, 7 and 11 overall in the Big East, but you do earn a chance to play in the NIT. And like all Seton Hall teams, you guys bow out in the first round. at Canisius. Canisius, Adrian. What's with it? Why can't Seton Hall in the NIT have any success?
1: No, I was very, I think that was probably the one time that as a player, I was very upset and frustrated um, because I took that so serious. You know, some players get in there and they say, hey, it's just the NIT and they just want to lose and go home. And I felt like, hey, we're going to play in this tournament. Let's go out and win it. You know, you, you have to have some pride and, you know, and some respect for the game. If you're gonna play the game, go out there and, and give it all your best. And uh, I, I remember I was very upset at my team, uh, upset at myself. And it, to me, that was one of, it was the toughest loss in, in my career, I felt. Because it was, a, it was an opportunity for us to still salvage, salvage that, that season. And then as a junior, um, you know that like your window is closing. I, I knew I had one more year Left and I wanted to make good of of all the opportunities and I, I just remember it's always left for a sour taste in in my mouth and some of those you know when you lose um, you get to, you see these guys all the time you know like in in the NBA circle and uh, like uh, Sean Respert with Michigan State like he was he was coaching in the league he's coaching in the league and I see him all the time and you know he's always holding that over me and we joke about it. And, uh, you, you know, you don't realize that when you're a kid, like, this stuff is, you know, I know it's basketball and it's not life, but, I mean, it, it follows you, you know, your, your entire career and your, in, in your adulthood. So, you know, you got to make good on, on those opportunities when they present themselves.
0: Well, I think you did because you go into your senior season and you just took your game to another level. Now you're averaging almost 20 points a game, 19 and a half. Your rebounds are up over eight a game. You're now dishing out three assists. You averaged 35 minutes a game that senior season. Mm-hmm. you ranked second team all Big East this time around. And you were up there, though, across the board in the Big East. Seventh in scoring, seventh in rebounding, third in steals per game. And you go on to win the Hagerty Award for the best metropolitan player in the New Jersey, New York area. The team doesn't have as much success on the court. They finished 12 and 16. But that was a loaded Big East, right? Nova, Georgetown, mm-hmm. UConn. All ranked in the top ten at some point in that season, and John Wallace leads Syracuse to go on to lose in the national finals. I mean, that was a, there's no shame in not having a great regular season against that kind of talent. But even though you didn't participate in postseason play that year, you did knock off number seven Nova and number fifteen in front of the home fans at the Meadowlands, offering kind of maybe some sort of consolation when you look back. You know, no, knowing now that you could hang with the best in the league was that a consolation for
1: that season? Uh yes and no. It definitely felt good. You know, I've always have taken a challenge. You know, um that year was unbelievable, man. You had Allen Iverson, Ray Allen, Carried Kittles, you know, C uh Syracuse had all, the, you know, those John Wallace and uh Sims and they they were a really good team and we end up beating them at home. Uh And I almost had a triple-double that game. I remember that. And Villanova had 30, 33 on uh, uh, Kerry Kittles. But I always had a chip on my shoulder. Especially my senior year, I felt like that I can compete with anyone. And I trained harder than I ever trained in my life. You know, I knew it was my last year. Um, I read something that Michael Jordan lifted every day and and every day on game day. So I started doing it just because he was Michael Jordan. And I, I spent the whole summer in the gym. And, uh, you know, that hard work, it pays off every time. And unfortunately, we didn't have the team success. And I, But I tell people every time, like, I would rather have averaged 15 and our team have, you know, we were a winning team, than to average almost 20 and we lose. You know, it's not worth it, you know. I, I'd rather be a part of a great team and, then, and have le- uh, fewer numbers. But it was good. It was re- rewarding uh, as far as from an individual standpoint. Point, but not being able to compete in the postseason, it, it just, it's like, you know, it's an asterisk to it. You know, I, w- I wish that we would have uh, reached our potential because we, we did have a good team. Danny Hurley was, was not phenomenal player. We had some really good talent on that team. But, you know, that year, as you stated, it was uh, unbelievable competition. And you, you have to play well, man. You got to earn it. Nothing is given to you in sports. And that's why I love sports so much. Um, you got to pay the price. And if you don't pay it, you can't expect uh, anything good. And so I don't think we we quite got to where we wanted to be that year.
2: Well, you graduated Seton Hall and the basketball wasn't done for you. You went undrafted out of college and spent a few years in the old Continental Basketball Association and you even won the MVP in 99, but you showed enough that you caught on to the NBA and spent nine years, like I mentioned previously, Boston, Dallas, Houston, Chicago, and you even spent some time in Seattle where you were reunited with PJ. You, right. you, you must have missed the uh, the constant uh, attention from him. How much of a change w- in, was PJ's attitude from when you had him in college to that point?
1: Well, I think it was it was a little different, and you know, and we were a different team. You know, my. It was actually my last year in the NBA and I was playing for Chicago and I got traded to Seattle in the middle of the season. And at the time they, you know, was they were in a rebuilding phase and it was Kevin Durant's rookie season. So I got to play with him for a couple of months and you could see the talent. And I was, you know, first day of practice and I got switched on to KD and he literally just act like I wasn't even there. And he just shot over me. And I was thinking to myself, like, holy crap, this guy is going to be good. <laughs> you know, you don't six say He's got six inches on you, A.G.
2: He's got six
1: inches. I know. And I'm like, but I've always held my own, you know, very rarely that I, I, I have ever felt helpless. I think, and I can tell you on my D-way, when I guarded him, I felt a little helpless at times. Tracy McGrady, when I guarded him, 6'9", unbelievable. And I would say Kevin Durant, where their size and or and athleticism is just too much. But you know that was a fun year in a sense because you know you could, you were playing with a, a, a young team and you could be a mentor. And PJ was great. You know he he uh, he understood. I think he had a, he showed uh, he had shown a lot of growth um, himself as a as a coach. And when you're rebuilding, you you kind of know like all right. We may not win every night, but let's find ways to get better uh, internally. And he did, you know, our practices were fun and, and competitive and it wasn't a zoo. You know, a lot of times when you're in the, that type of environment it's really loose. And but he still we, we, we were still going out trying to compete and win games. And that's a credit to uh, P.J.,
0: I'm not buying it. That team lost 62 games. You're telling me P.J. was okay with losing 62 games. Come on. No, he
1: wasn't okay. I, that's what I said. He, we, he still wanted us to go out there and compete and win and, and try to win and compete. We just didn't have the talent that year. Um, we're a very, very young team. But uh, in the NBA, it's, it's tough, man. I, people don't realize. They think like the pros, you know, we take days off and they don't play hard. It, it's, it's totally the opposite. I mean, the, the talent is unbelievable. These guys are competing for something, and it's difficult to win a game, uh, one game in the NBA.
2: So, three years in the CBA with six different teams, but you finally got your shot with uh, with the Celtics. What kind yeah. of mindset did it take to keep working for your chance at the big show?
1: It, it was definitely those three years in the CBA that prepared me. You know, um, I had an awesome coach. Uh, we used to work an hour before practice, an hour after practice. You know, the knock on me was I I was a tweener. And it's ironic because today, you know, they look for tweeners. You know, they want guys that play multiple positions. But when I was coming out of college, they said, well, you don't move like a guard. You don't shoot like a guard. And then you're not as big and athletic to play the forward spot. And you're just a tweener. And so when I went to the CBA, my uh, CBA coach said, this is why you're not being drafted because you're not moving like a guard. You're not shooting like a guard. So every day for three years, he had me do what was the, it's called the uh, crab dribble. And it's where you literally just go up and down the court, you know, nothing fancy. I would go down, with my left, come back with my right. And he always just told me, get your butt down and your head up, and I had to start. And I had, and the players would start laughing at me all the time. But the funny thing is, it started to impact my game. And I I really started to move like a guard. And I, you know, it it was unbelievable. But anyway, um, that coach, one of the assistant coaches with the CBA team used to drive up to Boston and watch the Celtics, and he would always meet with uh, Rick Pitino, and the assistant coach name is Gerald Oliver, and and Rick Pitino got tired of him driving up there <laughs> all the time begging him, say you gotta watch this kid Griffin. He's not he's not fancy, he's not flashy, but you know he he can play, and he's he's a great kid, and so Rick Pitino was like, fine, just bring him to uh, <laughs> summer league camp, and prior to that, I've never been. I never made the Summer League team. You know, I was MVP of the CBA. Uh, our team won in the championship and I still couldn't even make a, a Summer League roster. So long story short, I, I went up to Boston, made the Summer League team. We went out to um, Long Beach, California to play in, in their Summer League uh, against all the other teams and we went 8-0. and And I noticed toward during that week that Rick Pitino was coaching me from the, from the stands, he was just sitting up in the stands and he would say, Hey Griffin, shoot it. And I was like, okay, shoot. <laughs> you know, like, Take them. And I was like, okay, coach. And I was like, I, I didn't know any better. I was just doing whatever he told me to do. And then we flew back to, uh, to Boston and Boston held the Celtics, held their own summer league against the East coast team, you know, Jeanette's uh, Sixers and, uh, I think Washington was in that, that group as well. And we played seven games there, and we didn't lose one. I didn't lose one game. We, we went 8-0, and and then we went to Boston, went 7-0. and So when the last buzzer went off, I was walking uh, back to get my stuff. And I was feeling good about myself because I felt like I had a good tournament. I was going to go overseas and try to make some money. So these are all the things that were going through my head. And so as I'm walking off the floor, I hear someone call my name, and it's the general manager uh, of the Celtics, Chris Wallace. He said, hey, Griffin, come over here. And so he's on the phone. He said, hey, I got your agent on the phone. We're going to sign you to a two-year deal. we got a table set up in the back of the gym. And just talk to your agent real quick and uh, let us know what you want to do. And I just grabbed the phone. I was like, hey, man, that's like, is this, is this for real? <laughs> And he was like, just hang up the phone and go go sign that contract. And I literally, you know, in my jersey, I'm sweating. I went to the back of the gym, sat down at the table, signed my name on the contract, and it literally, you know, changed my life. But it was those three years in in the wilderness, I always say, in the CBA, those long 15, 16 bus trips to Yakima, Washington, and Sioux Falls, and you're playing all these gyms with, you know, 5,000 people one a thousand people. And, it, you know, the point of that story is that you never know, like what God's preparing me for. You know, I didn't know at the time I, I had to play all year round in the CBA. I had to go play in the ABL and USBL because the CBA was only six months. And so you had to find ways to keep making some money. And uh, I had to play in a, a lower level and then a lower level, you know, and, but when I went to that Summer League tournament, I was in such great physical shape and mental shape that I was able to bring my A game, and that made the difference. And they they signed me right there, and you know the rest is history.
0: I find it funny that you talk about the versatility of the player that they're looking for nowadays. And that versatility is all about 3 and D. And here is Rick Pitino probably like the, the pioneer of three and D telling you to shoot it from the stands. No offense, Adrian. I don't think you were a three kind of guy. You're definitely the right. kind of guy. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I, I didn't shoot jumpers. I mean, I didn't shoot threes, I should say. And players would be three feet off me and I wouldn't shoot the ball. And he was like, shoot it. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was funny, man, that uh, the way the game has changed now, I don't know if I, I could have, I could play in today's game, unless I, you know, I, I evolved my game a lot more to the three-point line. But back then, you know, it was all physical, it was two two centers, you know, you had the twin towers, you had three out, two in. Now it's five out, maybe four out, one in at most, but everyone plays on the perimeter to try to, you know, everything is pace and space and, but I, I think I still would have found ways to compete and get on the glass and defend and, and do my job. but you know the 3 point line is, has really impacted the uh NBA game. You finally make the pros but it seems like you had your most
2: success playing for Dallas like you mentioned you went to the finals uh against the Heat. We won't talk about the whistles there. But your most success was under Don Nelson and then another stint under Avery N- Johnson with Nelson in management. Why do you think you were so successful in Dallas?
1: I mean that's easy. Dirk Nowitzki uh Steve Nash, my first couple years with Dallas. I mean, all the attention goes to those guys and all you got to do is just stand underneath the rim and they'll, they'll find you, they're going to get you the basketball. And that's the truth. You know, I, I remember my first couple years with Dallas and we, we should have won the championship that year, but Dirk Nowitzki get, gets hurt in, I believe it was game five. He got hurt game four in the Western Conference finals against San Antonio. And uh, he had to sit out game uh, six and seven, and so we end up losing. And Steve Kerr came in the game and hit a couple big threes, and and lifted San Antonio. You, you see the bit bitterness still in my voice there. <laughs> um, but I remember, you know, being on that baseline, and I'm praying like, please do not pass this ball to me. You know, is Dirk Nowinski? He passes up a shot. He throws it to. Steve Nash. Steve Nash passes up a shot. And then they throw it to Michael Finley. He passes up the shot. And so they throw it to me. Like, you can imagine the pressure. It's like, I gotta make this jumper, you know? And I remember I would just get out there and just shoot hundreds of baseline jumpers. Because that was my shot, right there on the baseline. And, you know, just playing with with those guys, it really raises your game, man. You you gotta be able to carry some weight. You just can't be you know, um, especially when you get to the finals, you you got to be able to, to, to contribute on the offensive end. And I've always been strong on the defensive end, but over the years, I had to to at least keep teams honest uh, to a to a, to some extent. And it wasn't always easy, but you know, I I just remember always working so hard to just make myself just relevant on the offensive end because I never wanted to be the weak link, you know, and that's, that's what teams do, especially getting in the finals, you know, teams start playing, you know, I remember the when we, 06 with the Dallas Mavericks and we were playing Miami, they started putting shack on me, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, and that, that comes with the territory. And and I should have, uh, you know, I always put that on myself. You know, I should have worked harder. I should have been in the gym more. And I was always a hard worker. It just, you know the the three point shooting just wasn't. I just didn't have the the confidence at the time. But uh, I had a lot of fond memories in in Dallas, man. We 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 did a lot of winning there.
0: So I want to talk
1: more about that second
0: time in Dallas. But before we go there. Michael Finley passed up a jump shot? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they they, they would triple-team those guys and double-team and leave me open, so that's the only reason why they would pass.
2: <laughs> yeah, Robert right, already so, made a
0: career out of that, so don't feel bad. Right. <laughs> All right, so you returned to Dallas for the second time around, and, and as, as you mentioned numerous times, you had a chance to play in a memorable NBA Finals. But leading up to that, you guys got to play in two Game 7s where you won on the road. So San Antonio and against Phoenix, and it is not easy to win a game seven on the road in the NBA. The historical numbers state that, and you guys do it in back-to-back series. How hostile were those road environments in those two game sevens?
1: It was everything that um, you can imagine it to be. uh, Big-time NBA playoff games, man. And you know what, the Phoenix game, they had Steve Nash, Sean Marion, The Matrix, Hour. Uh, Boris Diaw. I mean, they they had a legitimate team. That team could have won the the NBA uh, championship. And I remember that that series, that San Antonio series. Again, they because they were playing off me. Avery didn't play me that series, so I didn't get to play in that San Antonio series much. I played in the first round against Memphis. I actually started in the first round. Then the second series against San Antonio, he just benched me from game one. And so when we went into the, the Phoenix game, he kind of kept me on the bench for the first couple of games. And then Phoenix kept rolling, and they were getting momentum. And so he inserted me into that game six game. Uh, and we were down big time at halftime. And uh, man, I, I had a lot of energy energy from sitting on the bench. <laughs> And I went out and man, had the game of my life as far as just contributing and making plays. Man, it was awesome to win that game and, and, and feel like you were a big part of it and celebrating going to the finals and having the, the champagne and the hats and the t-shirts. And I remember getting on a plane we're, we're uh, flying back to uh, Dallas and uh, Avery Johnson came up to me and gave me a big hug. He was so happy uh, for me. Uh, just the way that I came in the game and, and helped turn things around. And when we landed in, in Dallas, it was you know one two in the morning, and we had thousands of fans, uh, you know, uh, greeting us. And so it was a lot of good memories with, with with Dallas. Unfortunately, you know, we came up short in our ultimate goal, but it was a lot of winning there. All
0: right. So you've alluded to it a couple times now. I want to go there. You're now in the finals. You're up two nothing. You're up by 13 with six and a half to play midway mm-hmm. through the fourth quarter
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then it kind of all falls apart and miami goes on to then sweep you from that point out winning four straight games it's not like they blew you out i mean you had a really you had a whole couple competitive games there was even an overtime game if i'm not mistaken in, in game five but mm-hmm. they walk away with the championship T- talk to me about the emotions of going through that series playing on the big stage in the nba finals
1: you know when you know I started in that series the first couple of games and uh to to hear them call your name coming out of that tunnel was is unbelievable man and in, in, in the amount of media that you're surrounded by but i remember uh, vividly telling myself you know as we got in the first quarter i was like and this is just like basketball you know it's nothing it's no different like you got to go out there and, and hoop and make plays and and i remember like a lot of weight just came off me and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. Because the first quarter, man, it was just so tense. But as the game progressed, and I was like, okay, man, this is not, nothing different than what you've been doing your whole life. And, you, and, and I started to kind of come out and start playing well. And, and we went up 2-0. And then that third game, and you might hear some bitterness come out of my voice again, but we were up almost 20 and 13. And, but they kept me on the bench in that period. Usually I go back in that rotation. And I'm telling you that and then game three, one of the coaches convinced Avery that I should come off the bench because they needed more scoring. And they had Jason Terry start in front of me. Like Jason was our sixth man. He was he was the power. We you know, we would get stronger. I would come out the game, Jason Terry would come in and we we wouldn't lose a beat and actually we'd be better. And I think it messed some of our chemistry up. You know, like and I I understand you gotta make changes, but we were up to 2-1 at the time. I don't think that was the time. And, I, you know, I'm just being frank. I, I don't think that was the time to panic and, and switch your starting lineup when you're up 2-1. Now, if it's if it's 2-2 or even if you're down 2-3, then you got to start thinking about making some changes. But being up 2-1, I, you got to – You're playing against another great team. You're gonna lose some games. You know, you're probably gonna go seven games. That's the way you gotta start thinking about it. You don't panic after one game and start switching your 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 lineup. You know, and I I thought that was a big mistake.
0: I thought the rule was the the series hasn't started until the the home team loses the game, right? I thought that's
1: right until until they won uh, a road game. And uh, you know, we I think we were still in command. And uh, it was a lot of things I didn't agree with. You know, they they moved us from a five star hotel in, my, in Miami because they felt like team our, our guys were not um, focused. And then they they bust us. They they made us check out and bust us to uh, Fort Lauderdale into like a Marriott. And I'm I'm not knocking a Marriott, but they didn't have room. They didn't have room service. You know, we had we he made us have roommates. So we had to, to double up uh, on roommate where, where, you know, we're in the middle of the NBA finals and it was just so disruptive. You know, I felt like it was to me, it was just poor leadership. It was, you know, you get to that, that, that point in, in the uh, NBA finals. You, I'm like, hey, if those guys go out, go out. and come back and kick some butt, you know, there's nothing that can stop us. You know, that's, that's, I felt we were invincible. And I think you just got to take, sometimes these guys are young and sometimes they're going to go out and party. And, uh, but I don't think anyone was going out and partying to the extent that was jeopardizing our, our position, but Hey, even if you go out and party (laughs) to come back in, in the next day and just be ready to win this championship, you know, and I, it was just so many things that went wrong for us. And I think it was more self-destructive than anything. So again, you probably hear a little bitterness coming out, you know, because you don't get those those years back. And I, I'm supposed to have two rings, man.
2: That's OK, A.G. We're Seton Hall fans, man. We're bitter about a lot of things. I still can't look at the 89 game without getting bitter.
0: I thought it was about they were going to move into like a Motel 6 or something
2: like that. It's late on, right? Should have you know? stayed in the Holiday Inn, I guess. You played on a few more seasons, and then finally, when your playing days were done, you started coaching, which was probably no shock to anybody. You always seemed like a real cerebral player out there. You've been an assistant coach on stabs like the Bucks, the Magic, the Bulls, the Thunder, the Raptors, but we read an interesting story that it sounds like you got your coaching start from Scott Skiles, gritty, yes. gritty Scott Skiles, the day after he cut you, so is, for one, is that true? And for two, how did it feel like walking out of the locker room one day as a player and then walking back in the next morning as an assistant coach?
1: Well, I could tell you being in the locker room with the players is totally different being in the locker room with the coaches. I remember the f- first time I walked in the locker room with the coaches, I said, hey, their bodies are a little different than the bodies I'm used to. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, okay, welcome to coaching, you know, being, being around a a lot of naked middle-aged men. So, (laughs) (laughs) but it was great. You know, it was the best, best decision that I, I think I made Scott Scouse. When I played for him in Chicago, he said that whenever I retired, that he would have a job for me. And then I got released from the Bucks and he was actually released from Chicago and he took the, Milwaukee Bucks job, so I went to training camp with those guys for you know all through training camp, and I thought I made the team, and we bust we 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 bust up to Chicago for opening night like the night before, and and I'm in the hotel, and I'm just on cloud nine because I'm thinking man, this is going to be my tenth year in the NBA, you know undrafted, so cool, I can't believe it, and I actually went and bought me a a gold watch because I, I felt like, man, this is going to symbolize me when, you know, 10 years in the league. So I'm up in my um, hotel room uh, the day before the tip off. And, but the cutoff for the roster was actually three o'clock that day. And, but because I got on the bus and I, I you know, bus always to Chicago, I'm, I thought I made the team. And then at 2.59, my phone, my hotel phone rings. So you can see how old I am. My hotel phone (laughs) rings and it's Scott Skiles. And he says, Hey, I got some bad news, but I also got some good news depending on how you see it. And he said, unfortunately, we can't keep you. And, but how about you, you know, join my staff. And he said, I'll give you a couple of weeks to think about it. You know, I took about a day or two and I called him back and I said, I'm in and, uh, like I said, it turned out to be the right decision. And I, I remember going back to practice the next day with the guys and I, I wanted them to make sure they they saw me as a coach. And so I, I made it a point not to joke around and play with them. And I wanted them to take me seriously. And, and it worked out, you know, I had a great relationship with the players. Being under uh, Scott Scouse for those two years was the best thing that could happen for me as a young coach. You know, he's a very disciplinarian type of coach, accountability, big on accountability and doing your job. So I got to learn coaching, you know, the right way coming into the league.
2: So you finally make it to the, the Toronto Raptors as a coach and you finally get that ring you've been craving. 2018-19, oh, there it, is. <laughs> there it is. It won't come up on the audio, but there's there's Adrian showing off the ring. Please compare the feeling of being in the finals as a player versus being in the finals as a
1: coach? I think, um, for me, it was more rewarding as a coach because I was a little more mature, mature and I could appreciate it. I think when you're a player, you think you're gonna get back there. You know, you don't understand, like, this could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know, in that, in that nine years, I was fortunate to to get to the finals as a player, but a lot of players, you know, they can play 15 years and never get to the finals. And I think that that loss as a player helped me to really take hold of that opportunity. And I I knew like, okay, we got an opportunity to win this thing. You know, there was a lot of sleepless nights. You know, I was staying up doing edits and, you know, watching tons and tons of film, talking to the guys, doing my part. Just that sense of urgency because, you know, like this may not come again in a very long time and I wish you know you always say you wish you would have known then what you know now you know as a player I would have told myself to do whatever it takes you know if that means two days three days staying up at night putting in thousands thousands of shops shops you know eating better doing you know whatever it took you know I would have told myself that hey you may not get this this day back ever again and so I think that helped me and a lot of the things that I've been through as a player and as a coach really helped me as far as knowing what to communicate to the players, knowing how they felt at the time, how to communicate the coverages. And, and so everything happens for a reason. You know, uh, I wish I, I would have two rings, but, you know, having one is, is, is unbelievable. And that, that feeling was, man, you know, we had almost four, four million people at, at the parade took us six hours to get to where we needed to be, which normally uh, only took 20 minutes. I mean, that let you know, like it was just unbelievable, man. Man, people hanging from the light poles, from stop signs on buildings, out the window. Unbelievable. And, and just how we did it, overcoming all the adversity. And we had to, we had to play some good teams in that, that final, man. We had to be some good teams. You know, Orlando, Milwaukee, Philly, and then Golden State. It, it wasn't an easy path, but, you know, credit to our guys, our coaching staff, coaching nurse was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, it helped to have uh, one of the best players on your team and, and just everyone rallying. One of the best players, I, I would say, in the league, and everyone rallying together.
0: you describe the whole parade scenario and just the euphoria of everybody celebrating Kind of puts into perspective how important sports is in our society, right? And yeah. now, now we're gonna going with nothing. I mean, there, there are right. a lot of friends that I got. They're like, ah, I'm, I'm like, you know, the skin is like crawling on me right now. I got no sports. Yeah. Like, what am I gonna do? Right. Tom and I are junkies to think that there might not be the next season no football no basketball
2: Mike stop it
0: It, it's Tom it's reality man it's reality (laughs) right now I'm stuck in this garage man I don't know what you want me to do
1: yeah it is it's been on you know I could feel your pain it's it's been tough on everyone Um, especially for us as the Raptors who I, I felt we were in a position to win it again you know we got the veteran guys they know how to play together. And when you win it, then you learn how to win, you know, and I think that's something that we have. That's our competitive advantage over a, a lot of teams. So we were bummed for sure, man, that this thing happened, but we also understand we know it's the right thing to do right now. It's just to lay low.
0: So it's it's, a, it's an unfortunate missed opportunity not be able to finish right. the season. But speaking of opportunities, you have had all these opportunities in your coaching career. So it sounds like you've been blessed and appreciate that opportunity. In, in your life. I want to rewind the clock and go ten years back. There was some rumors that there were serious talks about you potentially coming on and being the head coach at Seton Hall before Kevin Willard ultimately took the job when uh, the program moved on from Bobby Gonzalez.
1: Was there, was there really ever a chance of you taking on the, the head coaching ranks at Seton Hall? I think that was more my ambitions. Than anything else. Looking back, I don't think I was ready, even though I thought I was ready. You know, Seton Hall is a big-time D1 program, and I think I was leading a little, part more in my heart. And uh, I'm still confident to this today that any I can do any job. Uh, but at the, the time, you know, I don't think I was ready. I think I just had so much passion for my my school, and you know, who wouldn't want to represent those uh, their their school? But in saying that. They picked the right guy. Kevin Willard is awesome. I think he's done a phenomenal job with the program. Bring it to such pride when, you know, we turn on the TV and see them competing and winning, especially their last couple seasons. been so, so awesome to be a part of. But, you know, when you're younger, you know, you you feel like you're ready. And I say that even now because I've been on six head coaching uh, interviews with uh, the various ball clubs, and each time I felt like I was ready. You know, but now looking back, I'm like maybe I wasn't, and and I appreciate my uh, sister-in-law always says that prepar- preparation time is never wasted wasted time. So, you know, all these years have been so beneficial and, and kind of put me in a position that I am now to uh, potentially be a head coach in this league or very soon.
0: So, speaking of those rumors about being a head coach, I mean, it's rumored that if Chicago were to have a spot open up, you could be a leading candidate. Now, wouldn't it just be wrong if your ex-teammate and new executive vice president of the Chicago Bulls, our Taurus just, just, just give you the job, right? You know, keep it in the Seton Hall family, and, and then why not go ahead and draft Miles Powell, right? I mean, that, that would just be the perfect scenario, no?
1: Well, if that job, that's a big if, because you never want to wish anything on anyone and you know, I'm happy with the Raptors. I, I, I enjoy being with this organization. But you always, you know, want to position yourself to to take that next step, and it could be with, with any organization. And you know, I'm just happy for Arturus. Uh, period. You know, if he if if he did hire me or didn't hire me, I'm I'm, I'm so excited for him. I, he was, a, you know, former teammate for two years. I know what kind of man he is. Uh, I know what kind of character, integrity that he possessed. So I'm just happy for him. And uh, my time will come when it comes. Uh, I'll be ready. But for now, you know, I think this was a huge win for the Seton Hall family to have one of our own in such a prominent position with the Chicago Bulls. You know, that's legendary organization there. And in being there, playing there, you're part of a family. You know, it's it's the Bulls family, it's the Cena Halls family. So think about it, it's just a, just a, a log le- legacy there with those two organizations.
0: So in all seriousness, though, Adrian, I mean, how interested are you in just having the opportunity to coach at the NBA level with your own team?
1: As far as just getting my own team and being a head, head coach? Yeah.
0: Well, no yeah, matter I mean, who the organization I mean, obviously.
1: Right. It, it's it's, it's a, definitely a goal of mine. It's something I work hard every day, and I feel like I've, uh, put myself in a position to do so. I've, I've checked all the boxes. I think I have a wealth of, of experience and working under some t- phenomenal uh, head coaches um, from Rick Pitino, Don Nelson, Scott Skiles, PJ, I mean, uh, Jeff Van Gundy. So I've learned a lot from these coaches that I've been under and, and I, I'm a former player. I, I know what it feels like to not play, be injured and come back and try to get minutes. I know what it's like to be buried on the bench I know what it's like to start I know what it's like to to win and lose I feel like I have a lot of experiences that I can bring to the table and like I said I'm well balanced from a player's perspective and I'm well balanced from a coaching perspective and I feel like uh the stars are aligning I feel like there's going to be some opportunities for me and I, I feel like I'm ready
0: great answer you're hired <laughs> <laughs>
1: When do I start?
2: <laughs> so, AG, you know, I, I, I want this is going to be the kind of the mini fanboy section. You know, I don't know how much you uh, realize how loved and appreciated you are with the Seton Hall following. I got to tell you, you've been the most requested interview for this series that we've had any for anyone. I mean, everyone's always asking, when are we getting AG on? But that love isn't is just from Seton Hall. You know, Wichita East put you in their high school Hall of Fame in 2009. The following year, Seton Hall put you in its Hall of Fame. What's the first feeling that comes to you when you think about the appreciation and love that these honors bring?
1: really is, man, to tell the truth, this is a lot of gratitude. And it's a lot of, it's it's really humbling and a, a lot of gratitude to my parents. You know, my father's not here. You know, he raised me for the first 25 years of my life. And he was a man of God. He had a lot of uh, just in character. And he was a disciplinarian. And, you know, you don't understand it when you are a kid. But I'm so grateful now, like all the lessons that he taught me about doing the right thing, even though it may be uh, not the right thing for you as far as your own individual benefit. But he always taught me to. Just do the right thing regardless. And uh, show up, uh, be a man of your word, work hard, put your head down, don't complain. And that's all the things that I've tried to do because of what he taught me. And now that I'm older and I have family of my own, I, I just feel like that I'm able to reap a lot of benefits because of the foundation that my dad laid. And without him and my mom, you know, I wouldn't be here. And it's all those values and the lessons that he taught me. And, and he's the reason you know, the the things that he taught me. And and parenting is tough today. You know, and any parent will tell you if they have so so much to compete with, you know, everyone's in their ear, you know, social media. And, but those values, you know, sometimes you just gotta stick to them. And then it may not be the most popular decision that that parents make that when they they say, no, I'm gonna hold you accountable. No, it's my job to discipline you. You know, you're not going to be the popular parent today, but I tell you 20 years from now, you know, I, I, I'm so grateful that my, my, my parents, they spanked my butt back then. You know, you can't do that now, but you know, <laughs> when I was growing up, you know, it's, you know, your dad was the, he was the law. And I know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, your dad, he laid down the ground rules and he, he, he put the fear of God in you. And, Today, it's a little different. You know, the, the, the children want a little bit more voice, and I get it, but you, I, I think you can't throw away the principles. You know, I think you got to change how you deliver them, but those values, you know, they got to stay.
2: Don't sleep on mom with the slipper. Let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, no question. First, first, immigrant mother with a slipper. Walk my head up pretty no good. Question. Don't worry about it.
0: I'm sorry, man. Just putting your kids in timeout just doesn't have the same no. impact. No,
1: it, it does <laughs> My mom used to take my ear and twist it. That was her thing, you know. We had the wooden wooden spoon back in the day. The wooden spoon came out in the Italian outfit.
2: Well, Andrew, before we let our guests go, we make them walk the plank. We're going to ask you five rapid-fire questions. We want five rapid-fire answers. First thing that pops to the top of your head, are you ready for this?
1: Yes, I'm ready. I'll do my best.
0: All right, here we go. Question number one: Most points scored in any game at any level.
1: Twenty-three in the NBA. You said you had thirty against <laughs> Nova, and now you're telling me you're I know, but <laughs> come on. <laughs> I was thinking about the league. You're right. I, I mean, in the CBA, I, I was drop. I was dropping major points there. I, I can't remember. Right, the we, only we, reason we, I I, re, I remember twenty-three is because it was against the Lakers, and it was against Kobe Bryant. So. That, to me, it was worth 50. And he wasn't guarding me. He was guarding me, but he wasn't guarding me. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started to really, like, hit all my shots. And I remember Phil Jackson was like, Kobe, uh, you got to start guarding him (laughs) now. Let's get
0: back on track here. Quick question number two. uh, Which team was your biggest arch rival?
1: St. John's.
0: Toughest road environment?
1: Syracuse.
0: Toughest opposing player you ever played?
1: D Wade.
0: Best Seton Hall player you've ever seen play?
1: Terry DeHerry.
0: Bonus question. Of all your former teammates, Danny Hurley, Ryan Caver, John Leahy, include yourself, who's the best with the clipboard?
1: Danny Hurley.
2: Congratulations, A.G., you've walked the plank. <laughs> I'm sorry,
0: you're just so humble, man. He's, he's calling out this 23-point performance. He's giving Danny all the props. There's no way Danny would be on this show and say that you're you're the answer to that question. Come on! Well,
1: hey, hey, Danny's proved it. You know, I, I still got a lot more improvement to do. He's been a head coach, so I got to give him the edge. He's done a phenomenal job. You know, just if you think about the legendary players and, that come out of that have came out of uh, Seaton Hall. It's been unbelievable, you know. Danny coaching, our tour is doing what he's doing, you know. I'm doing what I'm doing. Mark Bryant. Um, it's it's been fun, so fun to watch.
2: Well, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. We really appreciate you, and we wish you nothing but the best of luck going forward.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys, man. It's been so much fun, and we gotta do this again.
2: Absolutely. We're gonna hold you to that, A.G. People keep saying that. We're gonna hold you to that. Adrian Griffin, everybody.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcast with former Pirate greats, Mark Bryant, Kadeen Carrington, Arturis Karnashevist, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, this is Mike Dizzy-Daziri, and you've been listening to left coast pirates